Hello, my name is Brian Weidlich, and as a member of the Convocation Planning Committee, I have the pleasure of introducing our guests for today. Some of you may recall reading an article about a man named Rob Weiss in a recent edition of The Record. Weiss, while serving in the military, found that he could not perform the duties assigned to him because he was a conscientious objector. The process of leaving the military on grounds of moral conflict can be painstakingly slow and tricky. Today's guest speakers, MJ Sharp and Tim Huber, are young men who help people like Rob Weiss and Rob Weiss himself as he was one of their clients. These men have been serving in Germany with the Military Counseling Network, aiding conscientious objectors through the process of leaving the military. While I would consider myself a conscientious objector and pacifist, I am aware that not everyone in this room shares this view. Some students at Goshen College have friends and family members currently serving in the military. Today's convo is not against soldiers. It is not an anti-military talk. Rather, our speakers will seek to inform us about an effort to help and support soldiers in the US military. Please join me in welcoming MJ Sharp and Tim Huber. Good morning. I'm MJ, and this is Tim. I'm Tim. <laughs> and uh, we're here to talk to you a little bit about what we've been doing the last couple of years. Uh, like Brian said, we spent the last two and a half and one and a half years in Germany working with American service members. A lot of events that shaped me and, and helped me to decide to go to Germany and do this job happened while I was in college. I started out as a bio major. I was a bio major when the Twin Towers were hit. I was a Spanish major when our special forces first went into Afghanistan. And I was a history major when we first invaded Iraq. <laughs> and it didn't seem to make much difference what I was studying. Uh, things were not very peaceful on the international scene. And I wanted to do something about that. You know, at that point I was a very theological guy. My dad was a Mennonite pastor. My grandpa was a Mennonite pastor. And for me, being a CEO was, was influenced a lot by who I had read. You know, I had read John Howard Yoder, I had read Hauerwas and Wink, and uh, I thought this was a lot about what it meant to be a CEO. I thought these guys would be transformed, these guys in the military, I thought they'd be transformed by, you know, me helping them find these good books. And, you know, I had to find out that that's not usually how it works. One of my favorite authors is Robert Young Pelton, and he writes that some of the most interesting and educational things in this world happen in areas of high-intensity living. And what he means by that is areas of war, areas of conflict. And for me, my personal experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan and our experiences working with soldiers who have seen combat in these areas, I think it's true. I'd say it a little bit differently, though. Um, for me, it's about the power to transform. And it doesn't matter whether you're in the military or not, whether you're Mennonite or not, whether you, your parents were pastors or whether you have the right last name. War has the power to transform no matter what you call yourself. And the United States military recognizes this ability that combat, experiencing combat has to transform someone. Uh, even though we no longer have a draft, we have a professional volunteer military, Conscientious objection is still something that exists, and the military recognizes that. Uh, 
there are more than a dozen different discharges available, and there are hundreds of pages of regulations detailing all the different rules that can apply. What we do is we study the re what the regulations say and how the regulations are being interpreted, and we assist service members to know how those rules can apply to them and what their rights are. It's very complicated even for people who are uh, who work with it on a day-to-day -day basis and for someone who is just coming to terms with this and is, might be a little hesitant to talk to their chain of command, it can be a very significant thing to overcome, so we're there to help. We, with, in terms of CEO assistance, we will meet with someone, talk about what their experiences are, what they believe, and make sure that they really are a conscientious objector. The military defines conscientious objection as a firm, fixed, and sincere objection to all war in all form. All war in all form. Even though we have a volunteer military, the military acknowledges that based on what someone experiences, it is possible for someone to develop such a disposition. We help them uh, put that newfound feeling into words. We prepare them for the very lengthy process that it takes. It's supposed to take less than 90 days, usually takes closer to nine months. Uh, while they might be deployed or challenged in any number of ways, and we're there to support them. The Military Counseling Network is located in Germany, Germany, and there are 70,000 service members stationed in Germany today, in addition to uh, Landstuhl Regional Medical Center, the largest military hospital outside the United States, Rammstein Air Base, the linchpin, not just for things like shock and awe, but the, the military's ability to um, respond quickly to a conflict in Europe, Western Asia, Africa. Germany is, is the hinge for the, uh, the military's presence in that uh, third of the world. We're located there in the lower green state, Baden-Württemberg, and we're there to provide assistance to anyone located outside the United States who has questions about what the regulations say, and we're there to support them. So for an example, Cliff Hicks uh, grew up in Alabama. He's a Civil War reenactor. His dad was in the military. His uncles were in the military. His grandpa was in the military. It was very clear to him that uh, this is what he wanted to do. So when he was 17, he dropped out of high school, and his parents signed the permission slip to allow him to join before he was 18. He wanted to be in combat. He wasn't just joining because he wanted to get money for college. For him, it was very clear that this was an honorable thing to do, and he wanted to see combat. He joined after the war in Iraq started. He wanted to go. So he joined up, and soon after his 18th birthday, he was being flown into Baghdad. And for him, there were three major events that changed things for him. The first was when they were rolling off the FOB, the forward operating base in Iraq, and for the first time he saw a dead civilian. It was one that had been hit by a tank or a Humvee, you don't know for sure, but they had just left him there to die. And then the second experience was when he went in to clean up after the 82nd Airborne had done a raid and there had been some casualties. So he went in the house and uh, one of the elderly men there had been killed um, and then one of the kids had been shot in the leg. This girl was going to live, um, but for him it was even worse than seeing dead civilians because she was very loud and she was crying and she was 
well, screaming and looking at him like, you know, what did I ever do to you? The third experience for him that changed things um, was when he was out in a tank and they were getting incoming fire and for the first time he had a chance to kill someone. And it was an enemy combatant. It was what he was trained to do. It was what his parents had done before him. It was what he wanted to do in Iraq. But for him to do it, to see the effects, and to have his confirmed kills was totally different than what he had expected. And for him, at this point, he had to question, what is it, what is it worth? How much college money? How, much, how many of these benefits, how much honor is it worth to kill? And for him, he had to say, I won't do it anymore. He had never heard of conscientious objection. He was in Iraq. He had no idea you know, what his options were. So he just told his chain of command that he was done, that he wasn't going to shoot anymore, wasn't going to run around in tanks. And obviously there were lots of consequences for this. Refusing, uh, refusing orders in a time of war, you can't be charged with desertion for that. It's punishable by up to seven years in prison or the death penalty, technically. And he was willing to risk it because he believed it was wrong. Eventually he got back to Germany and he found out about our, our organization and he called us and we were able to talk to him about what conscientious objection was. And to hear the guy talk, he doesn't sound like a conscientious objector. He sounds more like a soldier with the language he uses and such. But for him, it was very clear. It wasn't a theological argument for him. It wasn't academic. It was just about what he had experienced and what he, what he and his conscience would allow. Another gentleman we worked with was Vince Lavopa. He didn't necessarily come from a very religious family, not necessarily a, a strong military family, but he was desperate. He was working two jobs and trying to go to community college at the same time, and he couldn't get everything to come together. So he decided to join the military. At the time, it was $40,000 for college with the Montgomery GI Bill, and he needed help. He joined up, but he wanted to help people. He was very, he was very sure that he wanted to help people, and he was interested in being a uh, medic paratrooper. So as a guy who gets flown in, dropped down behind enemy lines, and rescue people, get people out of there that need help. So he joined up, and uh, once he signed up, he was told, well, you know, you could do that, but you can't get the $40,000 for college. It's not true, but that's what he was told. So he said, okay, well, then what is there? And they said, well, why don't you be a combat engineer? What's that? Oh, you know, building bridges, that sort of thing. Oh, well, building bridges is a good thing. Increasing the infrastructure is a good thing. So he signed up. Then he found out that mostly what a combat engineer does is blow up bridges or when they find an IED, an improvised explosive device, it's uh, his job to go in and blow it up or dismantle it. That's what a combat engineer does. So he was doing it. And his first experience with that was um, he was manning a checkpoint. Everyone gets to man checkpoints. And car started coming up, and it's a very stressful situation. Any car could be a car bomb. 
cars started coming past the first line of cones. People were getting on edge. Past the second line of cones. So his commander fired a warning shot. The problem with a warning shot is you don't necessarily know where it's coming from. Your side, their side. So he was on edge. Comes down into position. Uh, in terms of the rules of war and engagement, as the car keeps coming, it's his job to line up the driver in case he has to use deadly force. It keeps coming, and someone shoots to take out the tire. Uh, unfortunately, that first shot misses, and it grazes off the hood. So he's heard a warning shot that he doesn't know where it came from, and then he sees sparks flying off the front of the car, which could very well be a muzzle flash from oncoming fire. Finger on the trigger, ready to shoot, and at the last moment, someone hits the tire, tire goes out, and the car crawls to a stop. Now, he doesn't know why the car didn't stop. They, no one ever found that out. But just that action that this car, which didn't have a bomb, it was nothing, just a civilian, just the action of lining up that person and knowing that he could have killed him, this innocent person, started to wear on him. He kept going at it. Later on, they were uh, responding to help out some other, another unit who was under enemy fire. They got in their Humvee and were going, and along the way they broke down. Since there was enemy fire involved, they abandoned and all climbed into a separate Humvee, went on and found out that there was really nothing, uh, everything had been taken care of when they got there, so they returned. When they saw their Humvee, it was on fire and people were running back to the village. So they chased them to see who had done this. Someone was up on the, the 50 cal, the 50 caliber uh, heavy gun on the top, back of the Humvee. And well, they thought they saw people running over a hill with a gun, so they took them out. And Vince was one of the first guys on the scene to find uh, these enemy combatants who were running over the hill. Well, it turned out it was a couple of 12-year-olds and there was no gun. He didn't, he was not involved, he did not shoot these children, but it was someone on his team. And in terms of deadly force, the military's mission is to diffuse that responsibility of who uses deadly force. I was following orders, I was protecting someone in my team, I was responding to aggression. You want to spread that out but he knew that he was in support of his team, which had ultimately taken the lives of these two children. And that war on him. Before he came to us, he didn't know that if he was a conscientious objector or not. When he came to us, he didn't know if he was a conscientious objector or not. But he knew that he was done. He knew that he would never go back to Iraq and he would never soldier on. As he said, Killing someone is a personal thing. It is yours. You have to live with it afterwards. You don't kill someone over $40,000 of college money or because you're afraid to stand up to your commander and tell him you think this war is wrong. You don't kill someone for those reasons. Being a conscientious objector is taking responsibility for that and saying, you know what? I was watching that guy's back when he killed that kid. No matter what the cost, no matter what benefits I lose, no matter what kind of discharge I get, no matter how much time I have to spend in jail, 
I'm not going to put my college money ahead of someone's life. So this is what we mean when we talk about the transformational power of war. We've worked with dozens of guys who've been completely changed by what they saw. They went from volunteer soldiers to opponents of war in all forms. And it's usually about the firsts. The first time they see a dead civilian, the first time someone in their unit is killed, or the first time they kill someone else. These guys come back and they can't function, some of them. They hit the floor when someone drops a dish in the kitchen, or they're afraid to go under bridges because that's where often IEDs are placed, or they can't handle crowds, or they cry uncontrollably at random times. And these are the guys on the side with the far superior weaponry and training. We never hear about these aspects of it. The fact that more people were taken off the front lines of World War II for, as psychological casualties in the US military than as physical casualties. The fact that although there were 52,000, over 52,000 American service members that were killed in Vietnam, over 55,000 committed suicide once they got back. We never hear about that. And right now, an average of 120 uh, American veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan are committing suicide every week. We're not all Mennonites here, and we're definitely not all in agreement about when or if it's okay to occasionally use military force. And that's fine. It doesn't matter if your dad was a Mennonite pastor or if you have the right last name. You know, it's not a blue state, red state issue for me or for us. And because in the end, it's okay to sit there and opine about the way we see it. It's easy enough to keep it intellectual when we have no draft, when 99.6% of the population is not active duty military, when we aren't asked to ration, when we aren't asked to cut back, when no one we know is there, for many of us, when we're just told to keep shopping. When our taxes don't go up, they actually go down. But when we hear the stories, when there are faces, instead of numbers, we might actually start to feel something about the wars. We might decide that we want to do more than just talk about it.